Now, we are uh, right smack dab in the middle of a message series called uh, DNA, The Bride of Christ. And uh, so we're just exploring and trying to answer the question of what, what makes us, the church, distinct from literally everything else out there in the world. Like what makes, or, or are there things that make us unique from everything else out there? So far uh, in this series, we've talked about the fact that when you place your faith in Jesus, you immediately, instantaneously become a part of the universal church, but that's, that's actually not enough. Like God has actually designed for the believer, for you to belong to a local church, a place like this where you can come and you can grow and you can be cared for by the leaders of that specific church. And so we talked about the biblical basis and the importance of church membership. And then a couple of weeks ago, we talked about uh, baptism and how, man, that, that's such an important symbol and declaration to the world around us that Jesus has taken us from a place of death and he's brought us new life. And so, uh, again, we got about 15 people lined up to be baptized in the next four weeks. And uh, just exciting times. Again, if it's something that's on your heart, the Holy Spirit is kind of whispering to you, hey, it's, it's time, you need to do it. Um, let us know, we'd love to talk to you about it. And then last week we talked about what it, what it means and what it looks like to be a word-focused or a word-rooted uh, community here at New Life. And so we talked about, man, why, why do we open this book every single week? And we talked about how it, how it changes us as we encounter God through his word, which Hebrews 4 says is alive and active. It's not just an ancient word with dead words on the page. It's actually alive and active. It's a supernatural book. This week we're going to be talking about another trait of the church, one that I think for most of us we honestly just don't think a lot about but one that I think is actually really critical to our spiritual health, and that's, that's fellowship, biblical fellowship. Now, I don't know what you think about when you hear the word fellowship. If you think about it, it's kind of a, it's kind of a weird word. It sounds kind of like a churchy word. Like we don't usually use the word fellowship outside of this context. Like we don't use it in our everyday life. Like I, I've never said to one of my friends, like, hey man, you wanna go fellowship on Friday night or something like that? We just don't, we don't talk like that. Um, in fact, if you, if you grew up in a church or church culture, oftentimes when you hear the word fellowship, actually, let's take a, let's take a poll, a show, a show of hands. So when you hear the word fellowship, if you think of, or one of the first things you think of is like a potluck lunch in a fellowship hall, like if you, if that's one of the things you think about when you hear the word fellowship, just ra- be honest, raise your hand. All right. We know that about a third of you are Baptists. And we love you, pray for you. <laughs> I'm actually, a, I come from Baptist too, so I can, I can make fun of you guys because I am one of you. Um, but a lot of us, man, we, that's like when we hear the word fellowship, isn't that what we think of? Man, I'm going to bring the, you know, the chicken casserole and you bring the salad and somebody, Aunt Sue's going to bring the dessert or whatever it is. And if that's your impression of what biblical fellowship is, you probably have very little interest in it and you probably see very little value in it, but that would be because so many of us, I think, have kind of a distorted view of what biblical fellowship is. And so my hope this morning is that we could just kind of unpack that, unfold that for you this morning. And my hope is you would leave not only with a clarity about what biblical fellowship is, but you would actually leave with a desire for it that you would leave with a, with a healthy hunger and, and thirst for it once we understand 
what it is. And I do think that's essential to our spiritual health and growth. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it, open it up, turn it on. Go to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10. We are going to bounce around a little bit again this week, but we're going to start in Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews is a letter that was written to some Jewish believers in the first century who were under heavy persecution, and we do have a lot to cover this morning, so I'm going to talk fast. You listen fast. Hebrews uh, chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a high priest over the house of God, that's another reference to Jesus. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. And that, by the way, is likely a reference to what we just saw, baptism. Verse 23, let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering since he who promised is faithful. And let us watch out for one another to provoke love in good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now notice the language that the writer uses here is not individual language. You notice he, he didn't say you have confidence and so you draw near with your heart sprinkled clean and with your bodies washed with pure water. Like There's no individual language here. But, but here, here's the thing, most, most of us are so Americanized, we are such a product of our, our culture of individualism that even when we read passages like this, we, we tend to read them as if they were written just to us or just to you, but, but they're not. Let's, let's read that again, and I want you to pay attention to the, to the pronouns that the writer uses here. Let's read it again. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled, clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering since he who promised is faithful. And let us watch out for one another. There's this idea of, of community, of fellowship, one another to provoke love and good works. Not neglecting to gather together, there's that same idea again, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other, there it is again, and all the more as you see the day approaching, talking about Jesus' second uh, coming. Did you see all of that? All this stuff that we're supposed to be about as followers of Jesus is supposed to happen with other people. You were, you were never supposed to do any of this alone. Like, actually, you, you can't do it alone. And so I, I'm just, I'm convinced this morning that there are many of you out there and you feel like a failure, you feel like a loser in your spiritual life, you're like a failure as a Christian, primarily because you're trying to do something alone that was designed to be done together in fellowship, in community. See, here, here's what happens when you give your life to Jesus. Two things happen. Actually, three, three things happen. First of all, God sends his spirit to, to dwell in you. So he sends his Holy Spirit to live in you, to lead you, to guide you. But then two other things happen right away when you give your life to Jesus. First of all, you get a mission. 
You get a new mission in this life. We call it the Great Commission. You can read about that in Matthew chapter 28. Jesus basically said to all of his disciples throughout time and history, hey, look, I want your life to be about this. I want you to go and reproduce yourselves. I want you to go and I want you to make disciples. I want you to, I want you to baptize those disciples, which is what we're doing here, right? I don't, then I want you not just to baptize them, I want you to teach them everything that I taught you. And I don't want you to just do it here. I want you to do it to the ends of the earth. The second thing that happens the day that we follow Jesus is not only do we get a new mission, which, by the way, is impossible to accomplish alone. You ever thought about the Great Commission? Like how daunting that is? To, to make disciples? To, to then baptize them? To teach them everything that Jesus taught? Like multiplying our... That is a daunting mission. You're telling me that now I've got to do that? I can't even tie my shoes right in the morning half the time. You're telling me I got to go like flip the world upside down and make disciples of Jesus? But here's the thing. Jesus doesn't just give us a mission. He gives us a family to do the mission with. And the only way that mission gets accomplished is if every part of the family is together using our unique gifts and talents to make it happen. I tell every Journey 101, we have a Journey 101 luncheon the first Sunday of every month where new people just come and hear kind of the heartbeat of our, our church. And I tell every single class that comes through, I, I say, listen, guys, we, we will never impact this city for Jesus, much less impact the world around us just because I preach well on Sunday mornings. That's not gonna do it. We're not gonna impact the world around us because we have the hottest band in, in Asheville. We're not gonna do it because we got the best kids program, the best youth program, the best coffee every, every Sunday morning. We're only, that's only gonna happen when we begin to work together as a team, as a family, as we live out this gospel in community, in fellowship, where we each live, work, and play. Like using our gifts to build up this body and to expand Jesus' kingdom outside of this body. But listen, that cannot happen. That will not happen as long as we see our faith as an individual thing. As long as you see your faith as something that's just between you and God, that's never gonna happen. As long as you understand your faith as kind of an individual sport, that will never happen. Because here's the thing, Christianity is a team sport. It always has been from the beginning, and it always will be. So as I was just kind of studying all these texts this week, and I was like studying through like 12 of them, and you've got to pick like one, or, one or two to actually teach out of. But the, th- the th- thought that just kept rolling through my mind is, man, I, like I, I wonder if, if so many Christians, maybe if most Christians in America, like if we're missing one of the most important elements in our walk with God, because the reality is, I, th- I think that most of us have just like flat out missed it. We've just missed this. Go back to verse 24. Look at this. And he says, let us watch out for one another. Why? To provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together, as some are in the, are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other. And all the more as you see the day approaching. Do you see all this each otherness there? All this each other language. The writer of Hebrews is saying, look, I want you to, I want you to watch out for each other. I want, you to, I want you to stir up. I want you to provoke one another to love and good works. Actually, that, that Greek word that we translate watch out, watch out for one another, it literally means to carefully observe, to fix our, to fix our eyes and to fix our minds on one another. 
It's like this idea that we're, we're a family. We're watching out for each other. We're walking through the fire with one another. We're pushing each other in those hard moments of life. We're just looking at each other and saying, listen, you can do this. Like, I know you, you think you can't do this. You can do this. I know you want to give up. I know you want to throw in the towel. But listen, I'm not going to let you go out that way. And deep down, friend, don't, don't you need that? Don't you need that kind of relationship in your life? Deep down, don't you desire that? That's biblical fellowship. See, we're, we're supposed to be in each other's lives in order to accomplish this whole following Jesus thing. And the reality is I cannot be stirred up. I cannot be provoked to love and good works unless people are in my life to stir those things up in my life. And you cannot be stirred up. You cannot be provoked to love and good works unless you've invited people in your life so they can stir up that in you. Like this, this is biblical fellowship. I've told this story before, but I think it bears repeating. One of my favorite authors and, and pastors is a, is a guy in the San Francisco Bay Area named Francis Chan. And so he tells this story, and this is a haunting story, but he tells a story of a gang member who comes to faith in Christ in his church. And so this guy comes to faith, he gets baptized. Everybody's super excited, right? Because we'd be excited too if there was a gang member that came here and got saved and got baptized, right? This is an exciting thing. But they noticed over time, like over a course of a few weeks, the guy just stopped coming. And so they, they called the gang member and, and they just said, hey, man, we, we've missed you and want to know what's going on in your life. And then, so the gang member said, hey, listen, I, I actually, I had it wrong. Like, like I, I thought when I, when I got jumped into my gang, what happened was I, I gained a family. So I got jumped into my, my gang and all of a sudden I had people that had my back in life. I had people that were coming to my kids' t-ball games and I was going to their neighborhood cookouts and I just, I gained this family and I just, I think that I misunderstood because I thought that when I followed Jesus and I got baptized, I thought that that was what was gonna happen with the Christians, that I was gonna gain a family. I see, I, like I, I just didn't, I didn't realize, I didn't realize that it was only a Sunday morning thing. And Francis heard that and he was like, man, and you, you don't have it wrong. We have it wrong. How sad is it that, that gangs understand biblical fellowship and community better than the bride of Jesus Christ? This was never supposed to just be a Sunday morning thing. We were always intended to have this fellowship, this bond, this unity that the world would look at and say, how do they live like that? How do, they, how do they love each other like that? How do they just keep forgiving each other? And that cannot happen sitting in a row by somebody looking up at a stage for an hour on Sunday morning. That can't happen. Listen, friend, you were designed for more than that. You need fellowship. You need this, this brotherhood, this, this sisterhood that God has designed for you. You have a mission that is way too big to accomplish by yourself. So if you feel like a failure, if you feel like a loser in your spiritual life, it may be because you're trying to do in isolation what can only be accomplished in community and fellowship. Listen to the words of Paul in Romans 12. This will be on the screens for you. Paul says, for as in one body, he's talking about the church. For one body, we have many members. The members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of what? Of one another. And so here's the first 
idea this morning that I think we just have to drill into our thick, Americanized, individualistic skulls. And here's the first point. We belong to each other. We, be- we belong to each other. One body, one family, one fellowship, one brotherhood, one sisterhood. Like There's something that we just innately need and desire about that. And yet simultaneously, at the same time, we're absolutely terrified of that. But I just want you to understand, like, you were created for this. No, I'll, I'll prove it to you. Look at, the, look at our culture. Look at the world around us. Why is almost everybody drawn to some form of connectedness, of fellowship, clubs, right? Motorcycle clubs, sports teams, gangs, you name it. Why are people just drawn to some form of unity where they can kind of have that fellowship and love for one another around something? You guys, if you've been around, you know that because I love Jesus, I follow his football team, the Alabama Crimson Tide. And so thank you for forgiving me for that. But I, so I grew up in Birmingham, and so we went to games. And I can remember as a kid, one of these games, I don't even know. I can't remember what happened. Something apparently really big happened. And it's a weird experience where you're in this stadium with 100,000 people, and you're all unified around one thing, and you're all very passionate about that one thing. And I can remember looking around and something big happened. The crowd was going crazy. I mean, people were throwing stuff in the air. Looked around. People that didn't even know each other are high-fiving each other. These grown men, never seen each other before, like bear-hugging it out. I think I turned around at some point. I was hugging somebody I didn't even know. And I didn't know why. Like, why why does that scene play out again and again and again in our culture? Like, why do people unite around stuff and form community? Why is that? Now, I'd submit to you that it's because at its core, that's the way God has designed the human heart to function. We, like, we want fellowship. We want community because we're actually made for it. So here's the second big idea this morning. It's this. We are wired and gifted for each other. So not only do we, do we belong to each other, like we're one body, we're supposed to be part of this one fellowship, we're actually wired differently and gifted differently for one another. Go back to Romans chapter 12, verse six. Paul says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. In other words, Paul's saying, listen, if you are in Jesus, or if you are in Christ, God has given you a spiritual gift. Let's use them. We all have different gifts. He says, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in his generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Paul is saying that God has uniquely wired you, friend. He has uniquely gifted you in a way that he has not wired and gifted me. And I want you to understand this morning, I need that. I need you. I need your gifts. I need the way that you're wired because I'm not wired that way. And here's my fear in the American church, just the way that we've set up church model in America. My fear is that we have taught you, maybe unintentionally, that the only gifts that matter in the church are the gifts that are displayed on this stage on Sunday morning. My fear is that we've communicated to you that that's the only, those are the only gifts that matter. And that your job as a good boy, as a good girl, as a good Christian is to come and to watch and be a good spectator. And I want you to understand that that is wrong. 
And that is unbiblical to the core. See, in the body of Christ, in the fellowship of believers, every gift counts. Every gift counts. See, so the, the men and women who are back in our preschool wing right now, who are teaching our babies and toddlers about Jesus while simultaneously changing their stinky diapers, they matter just as much as anyone on this stage. The men and women who are upstairs right now teaching our elementary age kids how to love Jesus, they count every bit as much. The people who got here early this morning to make your coffee so that you could stay awake in this sermon, they're really, really, really important to our mission here. Uh, The people that handed you bulletins so you know how to connect with this body and how to serve and how to grow. We're all needed. We're all valued. We're all critical. Listen, I want you to understand, you have a part to play in this family. And I don't know if you're supposed to be an arm here. I don't know if you're supposed to be an eye here. I don't know if you're supposed to be a pinky toe here. It doesn't matter. Like here's, here's what I want you to hear. And I want you to hear this from a place of love in my heart. Listen, do not rob us of what you uniquely bring to this family. Don't steal that from us. Let people get to know you. Get to know them. Get in their lives. Watch out for one another. Stir up one another. Provoke each other towards love and good works. Just this uh, last, last week in our uh, community group, have a, a friend in my community group and he shared this story and I got his permission to share it with you because I thought it was a really good illustration. Um, but he said a few years ago he was, he, was, he was moving and he decided that he was gonna move by himself. And um, he's a big, strong guy. I would kill myself if I tried to move a refrigerator by myself. So, somehow he pulled it off. So he, he rented a truck and he got all of his stuff in the truck by himself and he moved. And he said a few days later, he had a friend call him up and say, hey, listen, I know, I know that you were going to move this week and I want to help you. So when are you going to move so I can come over and, and, and help you? And so my friend said, well, I actually already did it. There was like this little pause of silence on the phone. And the guy said, listen, I'm not trying to bust your chops or anything, but I want you to know that you robbed me of that. You're, you're my friend. And that was a way that I could come alongside you. And that was a way that I could help you. I just want you to know, you stole that from me. You took, you took that away from me. That was a way that I could love you and serve you in this brotherhood, this fellowship that we have together. You took it from me. My friend said that was like just this moment of enlightenment where he realized, man, I never even thought of that before. So I just want to encourage you. Listen, friend, don't rob us. Don't rob each other of this blood-bought, this Jesus-centered fellowship, this brotherhood, this sisterhood that we're supposed to have and we're supposed to live in. Don't do it. Don't steal that from us. I'll show you one more passage um, and then we'll uh, start to wrap up. Go ahead and turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be here the rest of the time. Ephesians chapter two. We're gonna look just at verse 10. And this is Paul writing. And Paul writes, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Same theme as Hebrews, right? Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. So before the foundations of the world, before you ever existed, God prepared things for you to do that we should walk in them. 
Now notice Paul, he's writing to the church in Ephesus. There's no individual language here, just as there's no individual language in the book of Hebrews. All of this is we, it's us. It's fellowship, it's in community with other believers, right? Again, we tend to read passages like this as individuals, like this is what I need to do. No, you cannot do this alone. Paul says we, he says us, the fellowship, the community of the saints, right? The collective, people in your lives, you in their lives, together, we're gonna live out this life of following Jesus. You're not gonna do it alone, but together you can do it. I was listening to another pastor this week, um, teach through Ephesians 2, and he pointed out something that I'd never seen before, and, and this is beautiful. So if you're tuned out thinking about lunch or something, tune back in for this. Th- this is good. The original word in the Greek language that we translate workmanship there, where Paul says we are his God's workmanship, the Greek word is actually poema, poema, from which we get our word poem. Paul literally is saying we, we are God's work of art. Together, we are God's work of art. We are God's poem to the world, created for good works that we should walk in them together. Together. The language is always we, it's us, it's together. It's not you, it's not about you. It's as if God was saying, look, I'm, I'm saving you. I'm going to give you my spirit. I'm going to put my spirit inside of you. And then I'm going to give you this big, huge mission to love God and love people and to make disciples. But this work of art, this work of art is too big for you to paint alone. And this poem is, is too exquisite for you to write alone, believer. But together... Together, when you guys finally start to get it, when you finally start to love one another, you start living in this authentic Christian fellowship, this community, you're gonna paint this magnificent picture, this breathtaking poem to the world that's gonna cause the world to stop and say, how in the world are they doing that? How are they living that way? That's, that's supernatural, that's otherworldly. Like those Christians are weird and they believe weird stuff, but their lives are beautiful and their lives are powerful. Look, I'm not an artist. I'm certainly no poet. The artistic side of my brain didn't fully develop in utero and maybe my mom didn't eat enough carrots or something when I was, um, when she was pregnant with me and I'm jealous of you guys who are artistic and creative. So I've, I've written a grand, grand total of one poem in my entire life. And um, I wrote a poem to my, to my wife, Cheryl, for one of our wedding anniversaries. And it's not even that good. Um, but, but she really, really loved it. Didn't you, babe? She really, she, <laughs> she, she really loved it. In fact, she loved it so much, it's actually framed. And it's, and it's hanging on our bedroom wall. Um, so just a side note to you husbands, write, write your wife a poem once in your life. If you're thinking, oh, I'm, I'm a man's man, I'm a tough man, I don't know. Shut up. Write, <laughs> write your wife a poem. I promise you will thank me later. It'll go very good for you. But here, here's, what, here's what I learned about poetry as I scoured the internet trying to figure out how to write a poem. Here's what I learned. Crafting a poem is a lot of hard work and it doesn't happen by accident. 
Like I spent hours just trying to wordsmith that thing, trying to make it rhyme like it's supposed to rhyme, trying to make it make sense, trying to make it communicate to her my love for her. Like it wasn't just a bunch of scattered individual words I threw on the page. That's not art, that's chaos. Now hear me, hear me say this. God created you, he created us, his workmanship, his art, his poem. And listen, this might be offensive to you, to you but I'm gonna say it anyway. You aren't the poem. You aren't the work of art, but you are a really important piece of it. Without you, it is not complete. You need people, and those people need you. And when you begin to live in this rhythm, right, when you begin to live in this fellowship that God has designed for us, this community, God begins to paint a picture. He begins to write a poem to the world about his goodness. And through the art, and poem of our fellowship, of our unity, of our togetherness, the world around us sees that there's something bigger than ourselves worth giving our lives away to. The world sees that there's a, that there's a king and we belong to another kingdom that transcends this world, but he's making everything new and beautiful again. And in our fellowship, in our unity, in our togetherness, in our love for each other, God writes a poem to the world with our very lives. Friend, this cannot, will never happen alone, which is why individualism in Christianity is so dangerous and toxic. We need one another. We have to be with one another to accomplish what God has called us into, period. It can't be done any other way. So let me ask you a question. If God knew you before you were born, if he created good works for you to walk in, not alone, but with other people in this life, I'll just ask you, are, are you really satisfied coming to a church service like this three or four times a week and then going home and that being the sum total of your Christian life, are you really satisfied by that? Like deep down, are you like, man, I'm totally satisfied in my walk with God just so I could come to a church service for an hour on Sunday morning. Don't you long for more than that? And I know you do because I know that you were created for more than that. And so my heart, my prayer for this church is that we would, listen, we would become a people, we would become a fellowship, we would become a church that's so dissatisfied with just coming to a church service that we would actually begin to become the bride of Christ. That we would become God's work of art. That we would become God's poem together to the world around us. Living out these good works together that he created for us to walk in before He even spoke the universe into existence. Here's our last truth this morning. And man, I just, I pray that God's spirit would take this truth and just like embed it. He would just drill it, drill it deep into our hearts and our souls. We, We must make this biblical fellowship, this community a priority because Jesus centered fellowship is poetry to a world that needs God's beauty. The world needs this. It's not just that you need it, you do. It's not just that I need it, I do. This is God's method to communicate about himself to the world around us. You were created to be a part of this poem, to be a piece of this art. And though it may be scary, it's worth it. And this can only happen as you get into each other's lives and you allow other people to get into your life. 
the community group that uh, Cheryl and I are a part of. We've been meeting for about 10 months now. It's really taken uh, about that long for us to start to see walls come down in people's lives, to see people uh, be real with each other, to see people starting to like ease down the mask that we all tend to, to wear as a defense mechanism because deep down, if we're being honest, we're all scared to death that if people knew who we really were, that they wouldn't love us, that they would reject us. So here's, here's what I've learned over the course of the last 10 months with that group of people. Every person, every single person in that room has a messy life. There's no perfect people in there. When you realize that, there's a measure of safety to just be yourself. Every person in that room has baggage. Every person in that room has junk that they're working through in their lives. But you know what's liberating about it? We aren't walking it out alone anymore. We're not walking it out alone anymore. We're praying for each other. We're hanging out for fun outside of like the Sunday morning service and our, our community group gathering time. We just get together for fun, texting each other Bible verses. Like this is, this is life-giving. This helps us become who God has designed us to be. And so I'm just going to say what I said earlier. I mean, I'm convinced there are so many of you out there that just feel like failures as Christians because you're trying to do it alone. Let me just tell you right now, let me save the trouble. You can't. You can live for the next 100 years and you can try to do it alone for the next 100 years and you will fail for the next 100 years. You were never supposed to do it alone. That's not even bad news. That's liberating news. I don't have to do it by myself. I was never even designed to be able to do this by myself. I was designed to live out this life with a group of other people who are like-minded and on the same mission as I am. And that's why God doesn't just save people and give them a spiritual high five and say, good luck in the world, kid. Like, that's what a lot of churches do. That's not what God does. Like Never does God do that. If you're a Christian, God saved you and he saved you into a fellowship saved you into a family, and he gave you a mission to live out with that family. It's been that way from the very beginning, and it will always be that way. Think about God, and our God is a triune God. We talk about it all the time. God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, God the Holy Spirit, eternally perfect, eternally in relational fellowship with one another. The very essence, the very DNA of God is relational eternally in fellowship with himself, right? And Genesis says we were created in the image of God. We call that imago Dei. Human beings are the only thing on this planet actually created in the very image of God. He is a relational God. We are created in his image, which means we need relationships to thrive. We need relationships to be a part of his poem, to be a part of his work of art to the world. And that relational DNA of fellowship, God's DNA, the core of who he is, that extended right into creation. Think back to the garden. Think back to Genesis. God is creating everything it is, right? And he's saying, it's good, it's good. He creates something, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And finally, for the first time, after God creates Adam, for the first time, he says, it's not good for man to what? It's not good for man to be alone. So God creates Eve because human beings need vertical relationship with God. 
but we also need horizontal relationship with other people. And the truth of the matter is, is if either of those components, vertical relationship, horizontal relationship, if either of those components is missing, we just will not thrive as human beings. So let me just say something that's maybe offensive to some of you, but I just feel like we need to hear this. If the sum total of your Christian experiences coming to a service like this and singing a few songs and listening to some dude talk for 30 minutes on a stage and then going home without getting into other people's lives and letting them get into your life, like no fellowship, no community. I just want to say one of two things is happening in your life, right? You're either a child of God and you're living in ignorance, like, you just don't know any better. You read these passages, it's never really just dawned on you. Like, this is supposed to be lived out with other people. So you're just ignorant about it. Or you're disobedient. You're a child of God who's disobedient. You're like, yeah, I get it. I know this is important. I don't care. I just, I'm too busy in my life. I'm not going to do it. Or the second possibility is, listen, you have no desire for this deep type of fellowship because you don't yet know God. See, because when we know the, the relational God of this universe, our impulse becomes, look, I, I wanna know this God. I wanna know this relational God. And I wanna accomplish this mission. I know I can't do it alone. So I wanna just like find out who is around me that I can link arms with, who's on the same mission to me so I can live this out. And that just becomes a necessary component of your life. And when you hear me say that living in isolation is the most dangerous place, the most dangerous place for a Christian to be. It is a sad and terribly lonely place. And for a lot of you, it feels safe because you think, man, if people don't know the real me, they can't reject the real me. But you gotta understand this. If you were designed by your creator to know and be known, there's no sadder existence than that. My grandpa, on my dad's side, he was a part of that great American builder generation. My granddad fought in World War II. His plane was shot down. He survived. He came back uh, to the States, and he was, he was a different man. He was a hardworking man. He provided well for his family. Uh, Jesus saved my grandpa as a middle-aged man, and changed him from being a racist bigot into a man who loved God and loved people. He was well-respected in our community, but he'd leave for work about four o'clock in the morning. He'd come home, and I can remember this as a kid. He'd come home, and he'd eat dinner, and then he would go sit on the couch, and he would sit behind a newspaper for two hours until it was time to go to bed. And he'd go to bed and get up at four o'clock in the morning, and he just did that his entire life when he came back from the war. And so my dad told me sometime after he died in his 80s, my dad told me, like, no, nobody knew him. Nobody. Not his wife. Not his kids. Not his friends. Not his neighbor. No, nobody knew who Joe Dillon was. Maybe it was because of the war. Or maybe it was because he was afraid that people would reject him. If they found out what his deepest fears and struggles really were. But he never in his entire life let anybody in not even his own family. I think back to my grandpa and I'm just like, I'm sad for him. I'm sad that he never, he just never let anybody into his life. And so he lived his entire existence, 84 years or whatever it is, alone, surrounded by people, but completely alone. And this is what I tell you, listen, a, a life well lived alone is not a life worth living, friend. 
You are designed for more. You are designed for this fellowship, for this unity, for this brotherhood. We have a mission that requires that we live it out together. I want to invite you just to bow your heads with me for a minute as the band comes. And I'm going to ask you one question. This is what I want you to consider. It's one question. It's a simple one, but it's a deep one. Who knows you? Like Who really knows you? I'm not talking about who knows your name, who knows you exist. Who really knows you? Like the good, the bad, the ugly in your life. Who really knows you? I mean like this, this biblical, authentic fellowship that Hebrews is talking about, Ephesians is talking about. I'm not talking about a shallow potluck lunch at church. I'm not talking about superficial greetings in the hallway. Hey, brother, how are you doing? I'm great. How are you doing, bro? I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people in your life watching out for you, stirring you up, provoking you to love God and to love others. If you have those people in your life who are going to look you right in the eyeballs and say, look, we got you. We're going to get through this together. You have those people. They're just living life with you. They're pushing you to love Jesus, love others. That, that is real biblical fellowship, real biblical community. So this is what you to realize, man, the cure to the disease of isolation, like the remedy to the, the curse of going through a life being unknown is this fellowship. It is this unity, this community. And I get it. I get that isolation may feel safer And while it may feel less vulnerable, listen, it is actually the most deadly place you can be. And so here's my challenge. This is, we're gonna boil down the whole whole message. Here's the challenge. Friend, find authentic biblical fellowship. Find it. You need it. I don't care where you find it, just find it. We do our best here to provide community groups that you can be a part of, provide Bible studies, provide serve teams for you to be a part of. I'm going to be real honest with you this morning. None of those things is going to guarantee that you're going to find that type of authentic fellowship. All those things can do is provide an environment where that type of fellowship can happen. But see, at the end of the day, you have to want it. You have to want it because you can still walk into that community group. You can still walk into that serve team. You can still walk into that Bible study and you can keep the mask on. You can still keep everything shallow and superficial and safe there too. You've got to get to the place where your heart desires to know and be known. Got to get to this place where you just realize that you have been saved into a mission and into a family. And listen to me, the mission doesn't happen divorced from the family. The mission will never happen divorced from this fellowship. You are created for more. You need this fellowship. You need this community. So let's go get it, family. Let's go get it for our good. Let's go get it for the glory of our King. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for being a relational God. Thank you for not just sending us out into the world alone, God. Thank you for giving us a task that's so big. Thank you for giving us a a poem that's so beautiful that it it can only be done together. God, would would you just help us move past our fears? Would you help us move past our insecurities of being known? 
God, help us to step into that liberation of being fully known and fully accepted by you so that we could be fully known and fully accepted by other people. God, we ask all of that in the name that sets us free, the name that gives us life, the name of Jesus. Amen.